Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Sophie, my love, how are you feeling this week? We're coming at you with high vibes, I feel. I don't think there's going to be any tears this week. How are you going? There might be some tears of joy, but other than that, I don't think there'll be many lows. I am absolutely fabulous this week. So what a turnaround from last week's (laughs) episode of (laughs) having absolute berries. But um, I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, I am so good. And I want to say thank you so much to each and mm. every person that has messaged Jade or myself or the podcast Instagram or sent me a text to check in on things. I really was having a rough couple of weeks there and I it really hit me for six because, you know, I've felt stressed and anxious in the past, but I don't feel like I've ever had like proper anxiety like I did for a few weeks there. And I think it's one of those things that as I'm coming out of it, I almost can see just how much I I was struggling now that I remember what feeling like myself feels like. But I'm really excited to start this journey in a way that like, you know, I've booked in to see a psychologist. By the time this goes out, I will have just had my first session and I'm very aware that, you know, the first person I go to may not be the person that gels with me, but I'm, I'm really excited to start this journey and keep you guys updated along the way because I just, uh, yeah, I don't think that there should be any shame in getting help with your mental health. And yeah, it's been made very, very clear to me from the messages I've received that I'm definitely not alone in this. And it seems like the vast majority of people have been kind of feeling things with their mental health that maybe they've never felt before in the past, you know, couple of years. So... Yeah. Good. I'm glad that you're getting the help that you need and I'm glad that everyone else is, you know, feeling that they got something out of last week's episode. But I also want to say a big thank you to friends and family who reached out and also our beautiful loyal listeners because that's what makes us keep going and that's what, you know, gets us to next week. So we really, really appreciate it. Now, do you have any highs of the week? Oh, this whole week has been like quite a high just in comparison to how I was feeling. Like it's been great. I went away for two nights with one of my girlfriends and we just just relaxed and rejuvenated and ate yummy food and watched Dr. Death and just really it felt like a slumber party. It was really nice. Like we went out for dinner. Uninterrupted yeah, without children. Yeah, and we just we went out for dinner but we made sure we were home by like 8.30 so we got good night's sleeps and woke up the next morning feeling really good and it was just, yeah, it was really what I needed and, I yeah, it felt really good. And this week in terms of lows, you know, I've definitely, I still at the start of the week was kind of feeling that like hangover mm. of the anxiety where you're just like it takes time to kind of get your energy back. Like you just, I wasn't feeling anxious anymore, but I just was feeling quite depleted. But yeah, I feel like I've kind of got my spark back and my zest back. So that's good. You look like And now you can't shut me up. You look like you've got your (laughs) zest back. Looking bullshit over there. Um, What about you? Yeah, I've had a really good week too. And I have had a real clear head, which isn't common. (laughs) I I quite, you know, obviously I suffer a lot with anxiety, but I manage it on a day-to-day basis. But this week I have exercised five days out of this week. And for me, that's huge. And I just want to say that I have not lost, I've done this for two weeks now, like exercising five days a week. I've not lost one point kilogram of weight. However, I feel so strong and so healthy and so happy. And for me, that beats losing weight over 
anything. So I suggest people throw out the scales and go for walks. And if you eat chocolate and feel guilty and go, oh, well, I've done that. I may as well keep going. Now get up in the morning and go do something for yourself. But do it to reward your body, not to punish your body. There's enough types of exercise out there that you can find something you enjoy. If you hate running, don't run. If you don't enjoy yoga, don't do it. Like you, you can find something that works for you and then you love it. I tried, like I obviously do F45, which is amazing. And that's where I've become really, really strong. And then there's days where mentally I'm like, oh, I just can't do that today. So I go for a really long, nice walk and mentally that recharges me and I mix it up. And yeah, I just feel, I feel so good within. So yeah. And also I had a day to myself yesterday. I took myself on a date, supported local business, got a massage. My husband was like, go get one. I'm like, no, that's self-indulgent. And I'm like, no, you know what? I can support them, supporting me, supporting everyone. So I went and did that. I will say there's not a great deal of good that has come from COVID. Like, of course, there's been silver linings, etc. But I really hope this whole phrase, supporting small business, sticks around because I shopped like a fucking mad woman <laughs> yesterday and there was not one speck of guilt because I was like nah. it's just supporting small business babe that's all it is and I, I hope that sticks I hope nothing else sticks around but I hope that you know shopping massages getting takeaway I hope that continues to be seen as a selfless charitable act absolutely <laughs> I see it not going anywhere now you said you had a rude or fabulous from your own way okay so my husband and I, I need people to rude. yeah I know <laughs> but I'm I, I don't know where he went with this but I thought I'd say it on the podcast so we were lying in bed and I stretched and my t-shirt went up a little bit and my husband said to me you'd be a really good belly dancer oh fuck Nick is that rude or is that fabulous people um that's pretty rude if you were standing up pulling some sick moves and he said it because your moves were good then I'd say oh that's fabulous yeah you'd be great the fact that he literally just looked at your stomach and said that is probably yeah. a bit rude I'm glad because I thought that was rude and I gave him but a the fabulous bit part is we know that he loves you for you and he would never want you to change and I think he knows that I'm very quite like self-confident within yeah. myself so I just looked at him and went and have you started online zoom course yeah, <laughs> I've, I've actually bought one of those little things that you wear around your belly just to, you know. Get in the spirit. Yeah, it's beautiful. So that was my rude or fabulous. And do you have a fabulous mum hack? I do. This one was sent in by a beautiful listener. And actually, this is something that we've been doing for a while on the iPad. And I didn't realise some other people didn't know about it, but I saw another mum do a reel on it this week as well. And so many mums wrote on it saying, oh my God, I never knew you could do this. So I do feel like it needs to be put out to the wider public. So it is called Guided Access and it's on your phone, on your iPad, on your old news, on your perfect mum. Nah, I don't think you have. Anyway, so what you do is you can go into your iPhone or iPad settings and in accessibility you turn on Guided Access and basically you press the side button three times and it turns it on and then you do that three times to turn it off, but you need a passcode to do it. And basically what it means is whatever your kids are watching or doing on the phone or the iPad, it stays on that app. All right, now let's get into today's episode. I know we've been saying this a lot, but one of my favourites that we've <laughs> I recorded. Love this, one. this is with Jonica. She is the beautiful lady behind the Wanda twins. And basically she talks about her journey with having biological children, adopted children and foster children. Yeah. And I think it's just so interesting and she is such an inspiration. So we hope you enjoy. Jonica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Now, before we get started, are you able to tell us a little bit about your family and yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me guys. So we're a proud adoptive foster family. We have a mix of kids that came from all sorts of places, but we generally say from our hearts. Mm. So I was a single mum with Keisha and done with kids. Wasn't particularly maternal and certainly didn't feel like I needed to continue to grow my family. 
felt quite happy just having my one little daughter and concentrating on my career. And then I uh, met my husband, Clint, who, you know, was pretty keen on having his own. And I didn't want to deny that for him, even though I said I would rather look into adoption or something like that. You know, there's plenty of kids in this world that need a home. And I don't really like being pregnant or birthing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And Clint was open to the idea, but he still, you know, like most people, he wanted to have a biological child. So we went ahead, we had John T and that was great. And then, you know, that was kind of it. We had this perfect little pigeon pair, a little girl, a little boy, life was great. They were happy and healthy. We headed over to Vanuatu for part of my maternity leave. Uh, I'd never really traveled much. I'd holidayed heaps, but I'd never really kind of traveled or been part of a, a different culture properly we considered many different countries to kind of base ourselves in for three to six months Uh, we didn't want to travel around because we had the baby so we headed over to Vanuatu we rented a house for four months and on my second week there my house girl asked me if I wanted to adopt her cousin's baby wow and yeah (laughs) I thought well maybe (laughs) but also I have a baby of my own. (laughs) And she said, that's okay. One small baby, two small baby, it's the same. (laughs) Ah, If it was only so simple. (laughs) Yeah. So I told Clint, who was like, there's no way we can do it. Is that legal? We'll get stuck. They'll never let us back into Australia. You know, it's, this is crazy. We have a baby. So I I kind of didn't really think it was a possibility at all. I know that Australia has extremely strict rules about overseas adoptions. So I just decided to go and meet with the cousin because I felt like even if it wasn't something that I could do, obviously something was happening in her life Mm, where she was reaching out through her family network and through her village Mm. to find somebody to help. So if it wasn't the help that she needed, maybe there was a way that I could help. Maybe I could put her in touch with somebody else or maybe it was a financial thing. Maybe she just needed supporting. So I went to meet her and that was arranged for about a week later. But in that time, I was on the Google seeing if this was at all possible. I managed to connect with some other expats who had lived there who had adopted And what I found out was because I had a New Zealand passport, not an Australian one, it was something that was possible in a legal way and also in a non two to five year time frame, which is kind of what the Australian version is. So I knew that potentially when we did go and meet the baby and the mum, that there was a chance that maybe I could do that. When I arrived, it was like Kim Kardashian, like <laughs> at a concert, like it was crazy. They were all lining the streets to the village to welcome me. I just pulled mm. up in my truck and everybody was clapping and cheering. And then grandma went to get the baby who I then found out was called Hendry. She held him up like Simba <laughs> and passed him to me and said, Here's your new mama. <laughs> and oh I just felt like. Oh my gosh, that's so like, much pressure. Yeah. And how old was he? He was seven months. And how old was John T at this time? John T was about a week off his first birthday. Yeah, they're five months apart. I was just like, wow, like this is, this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that the more I found out about Vanuatu and their culture and their views around adoption is much different to what it is here and what we kind of feel around adoption. Generally, I think in Australia, if a child is up for adoption, that child was probably removed. There was a lot of neglect, a lot of sadness, a lot of trauma around that situation. You know, we have a great structure here that if it's a young mum or a single mum, they're not really by themselves, they are supported. And in Vanuatu, it's not like that. There isn't a situation where you can get money from the government there isn't Mm. that kind of situation at all we have a family because that's what society is expecting of us whereas in a lot of other countries they have a family because contraception wasn't available to them or because abortion uh, is illegal 
or because rape, whilst it's illegal, it's not really um, prosecuted yeah. or followed up, where sexual assault on young children is very prevalent. And, you know, there's affairs, there's religion, there's shame. There's so many other reasons that mothers are not able to keep their child. And then I guess, yeah, the more that we learn about that, but also the way that adoption is treated is it's a very much a celebration that you ask your big sister or your auntie or your next door neighbours to help. And there probably wasn't one family that I didn't meet for the whole time that we lived there that didn't have an adoption story, mm. whether their mum was adopted by her older brother or they already had an extra child in their house. It's just really normal there. It's a custom adoption. It's something that the village chief would do. It wasn't something I was able to do, obviously. Um, I needed to do a legal adoption. But um, people exchange mats. They have a ceremony. They drink kava. And it becomes two families joining together. They say that it takes a village. And I guess that's the kind of culture that it comes from. How incredible. And But how was, did the mother seem happy about the possibility knowing that obviously you guys weren't going to be living next door? Like she wasn't going to have that same access to her biological child like she would have if her older brother adopted him. Hmm. Yeah, and that was definitely massively on my mind because a lot of women don't have the same rights that we would have here a lot of their older brothers or fathers or next door neighbours speak on behalf Mm. of them. And that was something that I was so conscious of, that if Ruth needed help, I was going to help her, but that didn't necessarily mean that I was going to help her by adopting her son. If she wanted that baby, then I was going to help her keep that baby. And whether that was trying to somehow provide financial support or emotional support or whatever education, anything that she needed, I was really willing at that point to help her. And I think I asked her like maybe a thousand times, is this what you want? Because I just couldn't be a part of taking somebody's child who wasn't really wanting that in her heart. She was, you know, feeling the pressure from external influences. But Ruth absolutely did want that. She just got herself into a personal situation having a baby that she wasn't really able to look after for many reasons, which I guess is Ruth's story and I don't really share her personal story. But 100% she was on board with it. She wanted it. She was driving it. And she was so excited about the future that Hendry could have with our family, things that she could never provide him and a life that she knew she couldn't give him. She was so excited about the possibility of her son having that. And she was really proud of herself and the sacrifice that she was making to be able to give him that future. And then so what happened next? So legally, (laughs) we found out that it was possible. It wasn't easy dealing with different countries' laws, dealing with Vanuatu laws, dealing with New Zealand laws, dealing with Australian laws. Yeah. Vanuatu laws are very, very old and outdated English laws. And the courts can change them a little bit if they feel like it on that day. Yeah. (laughs) So things like that were really difficult. The goalposts were often moved and we, yeah, it took us a lot longer than we thought. We just, yeah, like there were times when the court changed their mind and said, give him back. And this was after like, four months of him being in our care, us loving him, him being our Which son court? 100%. The Vanuatu court just uh, said, uh, you know, I think this is just becoming, what, what had confused them was because we lived in Australia, but we were adopting Hendry from New Zealand and he would have a New Zealand passport. The um, master of the court in Vanuatu had decided to question what would happen if Australia and New Zealand decided they didn't let each other's citizens live there anymore, which, you know, it's not something that's going to happen. This is is like a deal between two countries that 
would cause all sorts of issues. It's not like a handshake that, agreement in a small business or something. It's not like a handshake. It's like, a, it's yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, like, that would be the least of our worries. I wouldn't be able to live here if that happened. Neither would Keisha, who was born in New Zealand. <laughs> but trying to tell them that that wasn't really going to yeah. be an issue for us. You know, they were just like, what if what if Australia changed their mind and New Zealand just can't live there anymore? So I think you should just give the baby back. Oh, my gosh, four months in. It's like, yeah. So was there a certain agreement that you guys had to live with Hendry in Vanuatu for a certain amount of time before returning to New Zealand or Australia? Yeah, so on the Vanuatu side, you had to be a resident, which we did, did become a resident while we were there. And we had to have... Hendry for 90 days before we could apply for a legal adoption. And in that 90 days, Ruth was allowed to change her mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no questions asked. At any point, should she feel that she didn't want that to go ahead and she changed her mind, it was too emotionally difficult for her, she could do that and that the court would give her back the baby. So those 90 days were really tough yeah. because even though my head was telling me, that if she changed her mind, then that was the right thing. Because a baby, when there's no safety issues, 100% deserves to live and grow up with his birth parents. Mm. But every day my heart was growing bigger with love for Hendry, who was now, you know, part of my family and my future. And sometimes Ruth would call me and say, I'm in town, can I come around? And I'd be like, that's it. She wants him back. you know, okay, like, let's be calm, let's be cool, you know, if she wants him back, then it's good, like, it's the right thing, and I'd meet her, and I just would have worked myself up into such a state of this is it, it's all over, and I'd go and meet her, and she'd be like, we grew watermelons, and I wanted to bring the first watermelon of the season for Hendry, and that would be it, you know, it was so... The way that we think of things as white women and our, our culture, we overthink these things. Like for Ruth, the decision was done. Like it wasn't an emotional toil that she was living with every day. Will I, won't I? This was her decision. She decided it. You know, I would talk to Joy Lynn, her cousin, our house girl, and be like, do you think Ruth is changing her mind? And she's like, Ruth said she, baby Hendry's yours now. That means baby yeah. Hendry's yours now you know but for us it's just this whole other emotional roller coaster absolutely and then what happened after that 90 days from that point on is she not able to then change her mind so from from then it's actually goes into the legal process we go through the courts we also have to go through a, a heap of psychological appointments and testing both us and Ruth just to make sure you know, that there isn't any manipulation or child trafficking or crazy stuff going on behind the scenes. They want to know that she's of stable mind and that we're of stable mind. We have to do financial checks, health checks, police checks for every country that we ever lived in. It's a really thorough process, which so it should be because it's children's (laughs) lives. And then just being in in a developing country while you're going through that, it always takes longer than... You know, you go to get something photocopied and the lady that knows how to work the photocopy isn't in. So come back like in a week. Yeah, <laughs> and, gosh. Um, you know, so things like that, like just took forever. But we didn't mind at that point because we kind of knew that Vanuatu was now a part of our lives yeah. forever. The more that we looked into adoption, because whilst I'd said it before, it was never really something that I knew about. We got to learn a lot more about uh, interracial adoption. We got to learn a lot more about open adoption, closed adoption, all these things that we didn't know were things. We did courses online for transracial adoption. We did courses that were adoptee-led, mistakes that other people have made along the way and that we can all learn from those things now. Uh, We started to learn Bishlama. We started to learn about the customs and the culture in Vanuatu so that we would be able to keep teaching Hendry uh, his history. Mm. Um, We found out that the Vanuatu law was closed adoption. So that meant that we could leave Vanuatu with Hendry and never come back. And there would be nothing that Ruth could do about that. And we decided that was definitely not something that we wanted to do. We feel like that 
again, if there's no safety issues, it's massively outdated and really traumatic Mm. and there's actually no reason for it. We knew that Ruth loved Hendry and anybody that loved one of our children is welcome in our lives, is welcome in our family. Um, So cutting her off was never an option for us. But the court cases were really difficult because the law is closed adoption. So Ruth only had our word. Yeah. And the judges and the lawyers would grill her every court case and say, these people could leave. They could never come back. You've got no, no legal right ever again. And she would cry and I would cry. It was awful. And, you know, I promised her that would never happen. And, you know, she, she trusted me. We trusted each other. But it's still really hard to hear that. Absolutely. And you know that obviously they're doing that because there has been cases where an agreement has been made from person to person that obviously hasn't been followed through on. So how old was your daughter at this stage? And what was it like for her, you know, all of a sudden having another brother? So I guess Keisha was probably about 10, almost 11. I know that she was at in the last year of primary school and she was finishing off her year at primary school before she was coming over and joining us for the summer holidays over Christmas. And um, we told her about it, but we told her not to tell anybody. You know, we said it's a bit like pregnancy. You don't tell anybody, first of all, until you know for sure. And at this point, we were still navigating the legal system. Um, So we said, you know, it's just our little secret for now. And then a few days later, after she'd gone back to finish the term, I got all these text messages from mums at the school saying, are you adopting a baby? Have you got a new child? And um, and I said, did, did Keisha, like, you know, tell her friends? I thought maybe Keisha told her friends and they told her mum. Apparently they asked in assembly at school if anyone had any news. Oh, my God. And gosh. she stood up <laughs> and told the whole school that she got a new brother in Vanuatu. <laughs> Just like that. So, I so asked, proud. Yeah. So I asked her about it. I was like, hey, do you remember we said we were going to keep that a secret, the adoption? And she's like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> and that's it. So, yeah, everybody found out. <laughs> and Good to know that she you guys was really don't excited. keep secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She was super excited, obviously, because she wanted to tell the whole world. Keisha had been an only child for like nine years. She was so desperate for yeah. a sibling Aww. anyway. And then, you know, from out of nowhere, she ended up with two. So she just was, she couldn't even wait. Like she couldn't wait to come over and to get to know him. She'd been over for a school holiday and then we'd flown her over for a couple of cheeky long weekends taking some extra time off off school but yeah she couldn't wait to get over for good and and to hang out and to meet him and to be part of that how amazing and so is the love different is you've got biological children and you know an adopted child yeah is the love the same or different it was different for a long time I don't know if you protect your heart in some ways when there isn't that legal stamp Mm. and you know there's absolutely no turning back. And that took, you know, probably a good six or seven months to happen. And I think you do just have that wall up because you do know that this isn't forever like it is when you birth your own child. And you also didn't have that nine months to get used to it and maybe even longer if you were planning it. Yeah. All of a sudden they're there. And sometimes times got tough in Vanuatu. Sometimes we got really sick and sometimes I missed my husband when I wasn't very well or the children were sick or things were just happening and he was back in Australia and working and flying back and forth when he could and I was by myself. And sometimes that was not great. And you look at, you know, an innocent baby, but you're like, it's kind of your fault. Yeah, you're creating a <laughs> lot of hard know, work, but yeah, they're not, it's like not intentional, it's, but yeah. Yeah, and I know that I was conscious, like at night when they were both in their little cots and I would go check on them before I went to bed and I would kiss them. I know that the kiss when I kissed Hendry's head, I was conscious of it, whereas the kiss for Jonty's head, I didn't think about it. Yeah. Whereas when I kissed Hendry, I would think, you know, this this is my new son or like there was just always a thought that came with it and I always wondered will I ever kiss him without thinking about it will I ever just wipe his ass without thinking he smells differently 
because it did. <laughs> like, I think when you change a nappy of a biological child, you're maybe inbuilt with something that it isn't as gross as it is. But when I changed Henry's nappies, like I would gag, like they were <laughs> disgusting. And I didn't know, like if you just had really smelly shits or <laughs> if you don't have that gene when it's your child. That's really interesting. But, um, yeah, but now it isn't. Like now that kid is just like the love of my life. Mm. Like he fills my heart with so much pride and I, I don't even question. I forget. I forget that Hendry's adopted completely, you know, but it didn't, it wasn't instant and, you know, it was a different love. And have you explained to Hendry that he is adopted? Yeah, so we do, we talk about it all the time. So I think that back in the day, like when our parents were younger and adoptions were happening, people didn't tell the kids that they were adopted. Obviously, that wasn't a choice for me anyway, because Henry's black and he's going to be like, hey, like what, you know, it's not like we could have hidden it. But research really shows now that you should never, ever remember the day that you were told that you were adopted. Because that's just such a traumatic event that you shouldn't know, you should never remember that. So from day dot, you know, we tell Henry that he he has two mums, that he grew in Mama Ruth's tummy, that he grew in my heart. The kids sometimes get it mixed up. Um, (laughs) Some really (laughs) random things about (sighs) John T. Growing in Daddy's Willie in the shower (laughs) and Henry. So really like any other family, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Hendry's like sees pregnant photos (laughs) and I say you know who is in my tummy and he's like me and you know like they get it really mixed up and but he does know and he knows he doesn't realize that he's the only black member of our family though my husband has black hair and Hendry believes that Clint is black as well Um, so if he talks about it he does say you know and daddy's black like me you know, and he's very white, but I think it's just the black hair. Isn't that gorgeous? Which we don't really correct. I'm sure that he's going to come to that realisation when when he's ready. But, yeah, we do talk about it all the time, that he grew in Mama, Mama Ruth's tummy, that he's very lucky that he has two mummies. And prior to COVID, we were very much in very regular physical contact. We've flown Ruth in the first year and a half that we were back. We flew her out to Australia twice. Aww. She came to stay with us. We went to see Janet Jackson together. Ruth is very much one of my friends and I love her and feel like I often did adopt Ruth and half the village as well. <laughs> oh, how gorgeous. Um, you know, it's important for Hendry to see Ruth in my life and Ruth in our life and Ruth being an equal friend to us. And what's their relationship like? So it was it was hit and miss really. Like the first time he was okay and he was he was happy. He was a lot younger and a lot less suspicious. The second time he wasn't really sure about what was happening and maybe he was questioning why she was there and what right. was going to happen. He started saying things like, Mama Ruth's going to have a birthday party and none of the kids are going to come and she won't get cake. <laughs> you know, like How old the biggest he? kind of age three insult that you could give. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, You're not my so best start- friend anymore. Yeah, <laughs> so he started being a little bit anti-Mama Ruth for a while. You know, we didn't push it. We didn't tell him that he had to be her friend, but I, I was very clear that she was my friend and that I really liked Mama Ruth. And But it was okay that if he didn't, but he, he kind of, we went over them for a holiday And we kept it real casual, you know, it wasn't about like Hendry and Ruth, it was just about us being there. And then he was, you know, he got back on board. She's a lot of fun. She climbs trees with them, you know, she takes them swimming, she teaches them how to drink out of coconuts. There's a lot of cool stuff when Mama Ruth's around and he soon kind of lets down those guards as well and he sees that Jonty calls her Mama Ruth and he's having a great time and Keisha calls her Mama Ruth and she's having a great time. Um, So he soon, you know, lifts up those guards again and he's happy. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with fostering children and what that process was like when you first got into it? Yeah, so when we got back from Vanuatu, probably about six or seven months later, we bought our forever home and we moved to the Central Coast on the Sydney dollar. So we were like, could afford like a much bigger house than we could ever have afforded before. And um 
we had a spare bedroom, so immediately by this point, I mean, I'm what like, else do you do but fill it? Yeah, <laughs> let's keep going. Crazy <laughs> not to. Um, so I secretly called the foster care agency when my husband was downstairs. I like went up into the kids' bedroom. Hang and on, how old were all the children at this time? So I think both the boys were three, and Kasia probably twelve, I think. Yeah, and um, yeah, I secretly called the foster agency made an inquiry because I didn't even know really much about it. I didn't know if we had too many kids, if, you know, our lives were too busy, if we didn't, like, I didn't really know. But I inquired and they said, you should come along to some training and then see. And Clint was very like, no, like similar to like, you know, we're going to get stuck in Vanuatu forever and this is going to be a nightmare. And he was very like, no, we've He's got like, enough we're just children. Starting to why, do we, here. Yeah, why do we need more? And I was like, let's just go along for the training. Let's just see what happens. And we went along to the training, which is, it's pretty full on. You do two full weekends of group training. Then you learn a lot about the kind of children that are going to come into your care. And I guess that was a bit of a wake up call for me because we had had such a great experience with Hendry. But I guess Hendry didn't come from any trauma. He didn't come from any neglect. Mm. There was no abuse. There was no substance abuse. There was no drug abuse. He was a happy, healthy baby. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the children in the out-of-home care system in Australia haven't all really had the best start to life. And that trauma can come out in many different ways. That can come out with learning difficulties, with behavioural problems, with attachment issues, with eating disorders. And during the training, you kind of hear the worst of the worst. And I think they do that because they want to get rid of you if you're not going to be strong enough. Yeah. So, and it was hard. Like we cried, like there was some really tough stories to hear, some hard situations, you know, and a lot of people did drop out. Like we would go back for the next course and half the class were there. And then you go back again and kind of that mum that you thought was totally in like she was gone and and that kind of made me more determined because I was like look at all these people like already giving up and they haven't even met the kids you know and then we also found out a lot about siblings that were separated in the time that they needed each other the most because a lot of foster homes can't take on more than one child because you need multiple bedrooms and we actually came home and and made our balcony into another bedroom so that if if there was a situation with siblings because I was just so upset like from that day that we learned about these siblings being separated I was like we need like another bedroom just in case and then we completed our foster training which was after the group sessions I think we had about 50 hours of one-on-one where they would come to our house checked our house, checked we were safe, did all the police checks. We had to talk about our relationships and we had to actually talk about tough times in our life because they want you to have faced adversity because if you haven't had a hard time in your life and got through it, then they don't know that you'll be able to. So you kind of need to prove that you're strong you've enough. had shit times and you face them together and you got out the other side. Yeah. So we had to talk about a lot of personal situations in our marriage, in our families, in our relationships with people. We had to bring up things like bad relationships from the past. Clint had to talk quite deeply about a family member that he lost to suicide. Yeah. And he had to really talk through that and how I had supported him and how he had come through it and supported his family what he did to deal with it. Uh, They want to know about your networks. They want to know about who's in them, who's going to help you. It's really, they go deep. Like It's really intrusive. And these are two people you've just met and they're asking you, you know, everything from like when you first met to who made the first move. (laughs) They kind of want to see if your stories match and if they don't, you know, like I'm not really sure, but like there's nothing that's off limits with them. So what's the difference between fostering and adoption? I guess adopting in Australia is pretty rare. Like I think there's something like 45,000 kids in out-of-home care in Australia right now, and I think the adoptions last year were something like 300. Oh, wow. It's not really something Is that because it's hard or is it because it's just not common? So... I think that Australia historically made a lot of big mistakes with taking children that shouldn't have been taken. 
And I feel like they wanted to make up for those past mistakes and they put a really rigorous system in place so that restoration with the family was always the priority Mm. and which it should be. Mm. I mean, I'm definitely the biggest advocate of children being with their birth families when they can and when there aren't safety issues. But I think what's happened here is the system is flawed and you're finding children that have been in 20 to 35 times that they're going in and out of the system because they're being restored with their family, but it isn't a long-term restoration. And then they're being returned back to foster care, but then it starts again Mm. and they are having home visits and they're trying to be restored again. And they're working hard to get that, but it it doesn't work again. It breaks down again. And there's no limit to how many times. Yeah, I know that in other countries that the system isn't geared like that because I think that some of these children that are slipping through the cracks that are having going back and forth all this time that isn't giving them the best set set up to life they're not having those attachments they're not developing a home because when they go back to the family and they have a breakdown their family is often moved on they're often with another child that they're looking after and don't have the capacity to take them back. So it's starting again with another family, another stranger, and they build up all sorts of barriers and they, you know, they don't attach themselves. Well, how or could feel you let yourself love, love because, in that situation? Like it's. Yeah. When it could be over at any minute and they've had that whole history of that. And look, there's a lot of charities out there and a lot of um, not-for-profits that are trying to change that system and that are trying, I know that Hugh Jackman and his wife, Deborah mm. Lee Furness, they have a doc together and they work very hard around that to try to change this legislation, to try to give more stability to children for longer. Mm. But right now, that's what that's what it is. And, you know. So how do you, you know, with welcoming foster children into your home, how do you give that love knowing that this whole situation could be so temporary. Yeah, and and I guess it is hard, but I think that if, I think a lot of people don't go into fostering because of that. Mm. I think that's the number one resistance that I hear from people is that they're worried they're going to love the child and the child's going to be taken away. Yeah. And they're worried for their own children and they're worried for mm. themselves. But I think if that's your worry, if your biggest concern is that you're going to love someone too much, (laughs) then I think you should do it, you know, because you can't not give a child a chance of life and a chance of love and a chance of a home if you're just worried about your own heart Yeah, because your own heart will heal because you're still going to have your family and the love and the support that you already had. And research shows that if A child in out-of-home care just gets one relationship for one year in the whole of that time, then they probably won't actually have any issues that need professional help in their adulthood. They just need one relationship for one year and it is a complete game changer for them. Wow. So even if that is all you get to do, that is actually enough to make the difference that they need. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you explain it to your kids, you know, when, because I'm sure they also, Mm. you know, feel love for these other kids in the house when it is time for them to move on. How do you explain that to them? I guess that my kids have been a bit more resilient than I thought. And kids do take things at face value, you know, that they're going back now to live with their family, that they're going to live with their other family. And kids are like, oh, okay, then that's, you know. And can you keep any contact? We are in contact with our last placement. Yeah. Yeah. And she was older, so she's got her own phone and, you know, teenagers and phones. (laughs) Contact is. You chat on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) but um so yeah we've been lucky with that I know some don't get any contact again yeah Uh, they don't even really know whether they end up back in the system or or not and that would be hard but again like the difficulties that we face are nothing on the difficulties that they're facing yeah and then can you tell us a bit about the story of Stanley coming into your life yeah so it was just after we had completed our training for fostering 
and we were waiting for a placement, waiting for our first placement, anxiously waiting, like calling them most days, going, hey, we're here. We've got that room. Are you like, have you got one? Like, have we have got anyone for us yet? Um, <laughs> which I expected it to happen a lot quicker, but I think just because of the dynamics of our family and having quite young children, they did have to consider a lot of aspects when placing children with us because our boys are little and we couldn't really have any safety concerns around that. There was a lot of other behaviours that come with that. So that's why it took a little bit longer. I think it was about three months before we got our first placement. So we were waiting. We were in, in the queue waiting and my dad died at the beginning of COVID. And he he was discharged from hospital because there were so many COVID patients in hospital that it was safer for him to be at home than to be in hospital. And he died that evening. That was obviously very devastating for our family. Australia had already gone into lockdown. I couldn't fly anywhere. I couldn't see anyone. I had a sister who was in Bondi who I couldn't even be with and another one who was in Queensland. The borders were all shut, even just state, you know, we couldn't drive from the central coast of Bondi to see each other. And it was a really weird and difficult time to lose a very close loved one when everybody's isolating. And it's almost like your grief goes into self-isolation because there isn't anything that changes for you even though that person has gone you're still lining up at Aldi and trying to get toilet roll and you're still just trying to get through this weird time that Mm. none of us were used to and you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything and it's all out of your control so it's quite easy to put that to the back of your mind and just carry on and the UK were also hit by the pandemic and it was kind of a strange time over there as well and a family member had taken it quite badly my dad's death she had always been struggling anyway on a personal level and the loss of him just really kind of I guess just it was just too overwhelming and then Stanley ended up in foster care over in the UK and similar to here if you can place a child with family before putting them into the system then that's something that you do So my name came up, of course, you know, she's kind of already done this, you know, this isn't her first rodeo. (laughs) That seems the obvious answer. So it was like, you know, Jonica will take him, which did seem not too bad at the time, but we were in lockdown and I couldn't leave the country. And we didn't even really know what was happening at this point. You know, there needs to be investigations. People get chances to go to rehab, to get therapy, to whatever it is that you needed to do. The court give you opportunities to do that, to try and regain the custody of your children. And then I spoke to my agency here about it and they said, do you want to put foster in on hold? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't even know what's happening over in the UK. Like I can't even go there. We're in lockdown. It's a worldwide pandemic. Like I don't even know, like we've just completed our training. We've done all this stuff. Like we're ready. Like we really want a child we've been waiting like it felt like you know a pregnancy as such because it had taken that long and it was like well now like I've done it all where's where's my child so we carried on with that and um the courts kind of just continued in the UK we went back and forth it was just really difficult you know there was there was this whole like situation where they were saying we can't give you custody of Stanley until you've got a visa to take him because what if you don't get a visa so but the Australian government were like you can't bring him here you don't even have custody like oh <laughs> you know so you can't get a visa unless like, you've got custody and, I, and, and I you can can't imagine, get custody unless you've got a but visa. I can imagine this took forever to get through because like one conversation would be what a month or a few weeks yeah. Nobody was even answering phones in the embassy, in the high commission, anywhere. Everyone was working from home. Oh, it was out. answer phones everywhere. You couldn't get through to anybody. I'm stressed. And just I listening. would have a court case and they would say, have you got a visa? And I'd be like, well, I haven't got a visa because I haven't got any parental responsibility. And he's just, you know, like he's not a relative. He's not an immediate family member. And they were like, well, you need that. And then I just, you know, and this was 
also just like our borders were closed they weren't just like a little bit closed this was like hard lockdown they weren't letting anybody in and take a deep you know <laughs> yeah I, don't, I need a moment I'm really just ripped she's up stressed right now. on your behalf <laughs> and any other time you know I could have just picked him up on a tourist visa brought him over figured it all out once I got here you know because he would have got a year because he was on an English passport and it went around and around how old was long- Stanley at this time when this first happened, I think he was four or five months old. Oh, so he was pretty, wow. he was pretty little. Mm, and, um, you know, he was in a foster care situation. And then it got to the point like five months down the track where they were telling me that he was going to be like unadoptable soon because he was going to age out. They want babies. Everyone wants babies. And, um, yeah, they were freaking me out because this was taking so long. And it got to the point where I thought maybe I... I need to bow out because if I bow out, there's nobody else and he's going to at least find a family yeah, who, right. who, you know, want him and who are desperate for a baby and who have passed all the tests and who are waiting with their arms and hearts open and ready, you know, maybe that was the best thing. Maybe I was holding it all up because of the situation and maybe that wasn't the best thing because this was dragging on and it had no end in sight. Oh, my gosh, um, what a You know, but I just, fuck. yeah, it was... <laughs> It was a lot. And there was a time that we did say no. We were just like, we can't, we can't do this anymore. You know, like we we backed out, we bowed out, we wrote a letter to the court, we said why. And then I guess some things just shifted a bit. We managed to get through to some people. We found out that um, the court could give us like an interim custody, which would mean we'd get a visa. We managed to get in touch with some really smart lawyers in Vienna and we managed to get some answers. So then we were back in of the final kind of court date. It was like, oh, hang on, we're back. <laughs> Us again. Yeah, so everything changed again. And, um, yeah, so it, it took a year of, again, battling visas and court systems in different countries. And eventually I got an interim parental responsibility. And then we were waiting for the visa. And that was taking a long time. Like nobody was looking at visas. Nobody was processing no, them because, again, we're can't. closed. We contacted our MP who tried to help and call on our behalf. I was kind of like thinking I'm going to have to go to the media. And I had an interview with Channel 7 booked for two days' time. And I called the um, Minister of Immigration office and I said I'm just going to wonder if you're going to be there on Thursday because I'm going to do my interview outside (laughs) and they were like what interview I was like channel seven I'm going to do my interview outside your offices and they were like "Um, yeah (laughs) and then half an hour later I got a call to say that I was going to be getting some news that afternoon and I said well good news or bad news and they said it's it's an outcome that's positive for you Um, So I got permission to bring him back and then I applied for permission to travel and uh, permission to come back as well. And that all happened. It wasn't too bad. Like it all happened in, in a couple of weeks. And then, you know, then the reality hit me of having to quarantine. And at that point, Australia had turned into like a red zone for England. So I had to quarantine when I went there. Then I had to do the hotel quarantine at home and that started to really freak me out. Like I didn't and the even, costs, like how much did it cost yeah. to fly and do all that quarantining? We were lucky that the local authorities in the UK came up with a lot of the expenses, right. but we were definitely out of pocket. The whole thing, I think the flights and everything was like $80,000. <gasps> yeah. The fl- the return flight was 50000 for oh, all of us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a lot. Wow. I mean, I know you pretty much have a plane to yourself, but that is still (laughs) mental. We do. And so what was it like when you arrived in England, so in the UK? So you've done your quarantine and then what? So it wasn't hotel quarantine in the UK. It was self-quarantine, which, and I believe this is why they ended up getting themselves into such a pickle over there. (laughs) So they had self-quarantine where when I got off my plane, I had to make my way to my accommodation uh, I was allowed to catch public transport because I came on a, <laughs> because I came on a long haul flight. I was also allowed to stay at a hotel whilst I recuperated from my long haul flight. Before you self quarantine, um, you're allowed to do all this. Could you go to the pub and have so, a drink and just have a breather and so then quarantine? My, 
my accommodation is seven hours from Heathrow. So I first of all had to hop on the Heathrow Express <laughs> and um, get myself to Paddington Station at peak hour in the morning with thousands of people wandering around. And then I had to wait two hours for my train. So obviously get food and stuff from the supermarket. I then had to get a, a train for like five and a half hours down to Cornwall and then into a taxi to my accommodation. <laughs> so You've I only come been... in contact with like three and a half thousand people. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, luckily for them, I came from Australia <laughs> and we were relatively COVID free at that yeah. point. You know, they were the ones that actually I was more worried about. I'm just laughing that you now have to self-isolate after all that. What's the point? Yeah, and then I had to self-isolate. <laughs> And then when you self-isolate, you can self-test and you have to do your test, stick it up your nose, back of the throat, send it off. And I was doing full on like, because uh, I had a test before I left Australia. So I was sticking that right up rubbing there. Rubbing your and brain. I was gagging, <laughs> rubbing it. I was gagging on the back of my throat, sending it. And then on day five, I was allowed a test to get out early if I was negative. So I actually had gone to a testing center for that. And they didn't even put it, they just did it there. <laughs> and I was just like, the you, chip. Are you all right? <laughs> like, you all right, mate? Like, do you need, like, <laughs> do you want me to? So you don't want to pick my brain. And they were just like, yeah. But they were just like, small tickle. And I was like, holy shit, like what? Like, there's no way you've. So, yeah, I had been shoving it right up there for no reason. So apparently all you need is just like a little tickle. Moustache rub. <laughs> yeah. And so then I got out at five and then it was that night that somebody this girl, she must have been about 20 years old with like the biggest eyelashes. And and she was like, just checking your all right. <laughs> and she'd just come to see if I was self-isolating. That was their check to send like, she had like a clipboard. It was seven o'clock at night. She was like, I'm just coming here to check you in, doing what you should be. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> and she... I think she said she had driven like six hours or something to check on me and was then just turning around and driving back again. Oh, my God. I can't, but, um, I can't even. That was it for the UK. And then I was out and I was free. They were still in semi-lockdown for the first week, but then the second week they kind of came out of lockdown. So I'd done like self-isolation. Then I did a week of lockdown. Then I had about two weeks of freedom. It was kind of like the freedom where you can go into places, but you've still got to sit down, yeah. mm. still wearing masks. It was like semi-lifted. Yeah. And um, yeah, then once all the introductions were done and the final court case was done, then I, I got back on a plane. And and how old was Stanley when you got him? Um, So he is 20 months. And so what was that like? Because he was obviously a fair bit older than Hendry was when you first got Hendry. How did those experiences differ? It was really hard. He was really suspicious of me. He didn't, like, he knew, like, you know, I think kids are smart. Like, he knew I was, I was going to be there and taking him away for, from his life that he'd known for a year and that he was quite happy in, really. He didn't know it was temporary, you know. Yeah. These people looked after him. They cared for him. They kept him safe. Mm. They fed him. And, um, you know, here I am turning up. We'd done Zoom with Stanley for about seven months, like, you know, impossible with that age. So we just sang nursery rhymes. And when he first saw me, he called me Roro because we always sang Roro the boat. <laughs> so when I walked in, he kind of looked at me and he went, Roro? Oh, <laughs> I said, yes, me, Roro. And, um, you know, he just was, he wasn't keen. Like the more I came to see him, the less he wanted to see me. It was really heartbreaking. Yeah. He just associated me with being taken away from his safety net and um, even though I took him to soft play in the park and the beach and we had fun and the boys were with me, he just was like, this isn't what I want. You know, I, I don't want you. I want the people that I've been with for this this amount of time. You know, I was like the daycare that you drop your kids off at and yeah. they don't really want to go. So he'd have fun with me all day, but he's certainly like every single night at 5 p.m. He would get his dummy in his jacket and stand by the door and be like. <laughs> You know, I went out of here. And each morning you kind of felt like you were starting again. Yeah, every morning. And then after about 10 days of that, I said to them, like, we can't do it. We've got to just do it. Yeah, Like, it just needs to be. Like, because every day he he knows they're coming and he's waiting for them. And, you know, this isn't going to happen for the rest of his life and we just need to do it because this is actually making him worse. To the point now where I turn up, he's crying because he knows what's Mm. happening. 
so we did it we did it that way and it actually was the best thing because really fast he realized this is it you know he went to bed and he woke up and nobody came and he stopped looking yeah you know and then he could rather than be anxious all day about wondering when it was going to end he could actually be part of it Mm. and then it it was a lot faster after that that he he kind of got involved and he was calling me mum within two weeks and that's something that the psychologist said would happen because of my other children yeah so Mm. it's not that he thinks that's it now she's my mum and it's so loving and amazing he thinks that's my name name. Yeah. yeah yeah that's what everyone else is calling me so he calls me mom and everyone's like it's so amazing he's calling you mom but it's like mom doesn't mean mom yeah. to him yeah. like he doesn't know what that title involves yeah. yeah and so do you think that then going into two weeks of hotel quarantine did that help with the bonding or was that quite full on going from him not really knowing you to all of a sudden spending so much time he's sick of you <laughs> I think it was both like I think there were definitely times when it was great you know that we did have this time and because he was so suspicious of me and in public he would often like if I took him to a park he would use that opportunity to go and try and like join another family <laughs> oh, and get with another mom you know so he he was shopping he around yeah like he would always be over like like her like pick me up to like oh. random people like in the street <laughs> I'd just be like no you're with me now Stanley like this is how it goes so that was great because he didn't have another opportunity like especially with my mum in the UK grandma that we got to hang out with quite a bit he really made grandma his anybody really that wasn't me because he like he just knew his intuition was that this this person's taken me away and I'm just not really keen uh so that you know we removed external people so he had no choice but to trust me and to you know like a Stockholm syndrome (laughs) he had to but um no we definitely grew that bond quite quickly then um he did learn to trust me and came to me and and was happy to have affection but yeah at the same time it was it was hard you know it was two weeks of not seeing anybody and it became like a bit of a an unnatural environment as well you know where it was great and safe in these this little tiny apartment yeah with somebody knocking on our door and puzzles and games all day long and safety and warmth but you know it's, it's not like that we like live in a big world where we have lots of things to do and so yeah it was good and bad but uh I'd say overall I was thankful for that time because I think that if I'd come back and Stanley had met my husband he he never would have be attached to me in the way that he has and do you feel like you're still in that stage like you were when you first were with Hendry where you're consciously kissing him or consciously showing him affection or is that starting to become more I am and it still does feel different to my other children I know that when I was in quarantine like I had a bath and Stanley was a bit whingy that day and he just stood at the bath like whinging like I couldn't leave the room without Mm. him whinging so he just stood there whinging at me and you know I guess a part of me thought I should just pull him in and have a bath with him but I I wasn't ready to be naked with with a child that you know was legally mine but not biologically mine it just felt strange it's an intimate thing to be naked with somebody if I was in my swimmers in a swimming pool or a shower it would have been different but I was in the bath and I was naked and I just didn't feel ready and I kind of figured if I don't feel ready I'm, I'm not sure he would and it's not that I was denying him skin on skin we were doing that we were having cuddles you know we were very touchy and massagey and doing all those things that he needed but um I just didn't feel ready to do that and and still now I haven't I haven't bathed with him but I definitely still had a pre-existing love for Stanley like you would for a nephew or Mm, a cousin even before you meet them Mm. because they're related to you and you love the person that they've come from and I think that you always feel that anyway so there was already a love for him and I still love him but it's not the same love right now 
And it's not a less of a love. It's a different kind of love. It's, a it's like how love. you love your partner different to how you love your yeah. children and or how you love your and parents and your or pets. whatever, but oh, I don't get the pet thing. But, um, oh. <laughs> but you know, it's not that I, yeah, love my husband less than my kids. It's just so different. It's, in some aspects it's more of a love and a stronger love mm. because of what he's been through. You know, I have And this, the length you've gone to to make this happen. I have this greater empathy for the situation yep. that Stanley's come from where I just feel this protective love of him, mm. which I don't feel of Jonty and Kasia because, you know, they, they've had life easy. Yep. And it's just, you know, they haven't gone through this stuff. They haven't battled. They're not lucky to be alive, yeah. you know, whereas that love for him and that protective love is definitely more of that nurturing and be careful and don't do this and don't upset him. And, you know, whereas there's like, get out, go do that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you can, you can do it going like I'm more of a helicopter with him. Yeah. Whereas I'm not like that with, with the others. Well, Jonica, I think you are a phenomenal human being and everything you have done and you are doing is just mind blowing. So thank you. And thank you for being so open because it is, um, yeah, such a complex, I mean, each of your paths you've gone down is so complex and yep. I know there's so many parents out there that are just thinking, oh, gosh, where do you even begin? begin? So to have gone through all of this, you know, overseas and with COVID and got everything, good on you for sticking with it. And it sounds like those kids are in a beautiful, hmm. overflowing home. <laughs> and do you have any <laughs> foster kids at the moment? Not at the moment. Oh, lazy, um, God. Cl- yeah, Clint wanted to just have a few months off oh, Clint. because he Come on, wanted mate. time to bond with Stanley. And he's saying, let's revisit next year, but I'm thinking Christmas, you know. Nobody wants to, like, be in residential home. Like, there's mm. kids in Australia right now that are living in motels because there aren't enough foster homes for them. Like, I know that last year there was an eight-year-old girl living in a motel in my town for Christmas. And I tried to get her because I was like on the phone to my agency saying, like, I'll take her for Christmas, even if that's all it is. And they were like, she's not in our agency. She's not in our jurisdiction. We can't. But that's the kind of stories and the things that are happening out there. I think the ABC did a really interesting documentary about kids in motels in Australia. Mm. You know, so for me, I'm thinking, well, kind of play on that for Christmas and I'll manage to talk him round because I always do in the end. Of course. Oh, well, good on both of you um, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for me, guys, and for helping spread the word because it is really important and it is really overwhelming and it's not easy, but I guess that's a good thing because when you have fought that hard for it, then you're going to you're gonna be the right person for it. And we'll tag you in our show notes, but if anyone wants to touch base with you or follow your journey, your Instagram is at the Wonder Twins. The dot Wonder Twins. Yes. Yeah. With an A, <laughs> Wonder. Yes. Wandering around the world collecting children <laughs> rather than wandering whether or not you should. Yeah. So instead of snow domes, they're children, but it's a great, yes. great way to do it. Thank so you so much. dot W-A-N-D-E-R twins. Yeah. When I'm like, well, before when I was allowed to go to the mall, like I'd be like, do you want me to pick up? So be like, just no more children. <laughs> and I'd be like, hun, do you think I'm at Westfield? Like collecting children right now he's just like just no more okay <laughs> just get the bread yeah yeah just get the bread honey and come straight home <laughs> well thank you so much and we'll be keeping an eye on if you're turning any other spaces in your house into bedrooms I've yeah. heard that garage needs a renovation so uh... <laughs> the, Harry, the Harry Potter room under the yes, stairs yes, that's beautiful. my next <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you so, so much, much. Thanks, guys. Speak to you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.